Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Sneha Desai. Sneha is the Chief Legal Counsel in Global Litigation Employment at Stryker. She's held that role for about six months. So she joined earlier um, this year, and before that, she had a similar role at BASF. Sneha is a fantastic role model as a lawyer and as a person for all of us. She takes us through her career, the importance right back and the influence of her father, not only in the decision to become a lawyer, but even beyond. We talk about the role and importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, how that's been very, really formative in in Sneha's career and the impact she's making there now. She talks about how important pro bono work is and some of her initiatives there. We get a little bit tactical also talking about uh, alternative fee arrangements and uh, managing outside counsel through those kind of arrangements and the effort to get away from the dreaded billable hour. So Sneha and myself are completely aligned that the billable hour is not the right measure of value and results. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Sneha Desai, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm really looking forward to to this episode. Thank you, Jim. I'm I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. Um, Oh, by the way, which part of the world does this podcast find you in? Where are you right now? I am in the great state of New Jersey. In New Jersey. Okay. Only a few minutes away from me in New York. Now, Sneha, take us through the Sneha Desai story and start wherever you'd like. What got you? How did you get into law? And then we'll pick up from there. So I wish, Jim, I could say that I had, you know, a strong desire to be a lawyer from the very beginning of my, you know, childhood. Um, But it really, it really came down to my dad, right? So my dad was uh, an immigrant from India. He came to the U.S. in the late 60s, early 70s really worked hard. He was an engineer. And when it came to his kids, he had very kind of distinct ideas of what, of what we should do with our lives. Is that um, right? He sat me down um, early in college. I was a business major in college and, yeah. you know, not had some ideas of what I wanted to do. Um, but he sat me down, I remember early in my college career. And he said, Basically, he, he gave me three options of what I could do with my life that would be acceptable to him. Uh, engineer was one of them, but that just wasn't really all that interesting to me. Um, doctor was another one, because every good Indian child should grow up to be a doctor. And I think he was disappointed that that's not what I wanted to do. I, I couldn't even dissect frogs in biology class. It just it made me really <laughs> anxious and nervous. So I was never going to be able to make it through med school. I knew that. Um, and then lawyer was the third option. Uh, and I kind of thought, all right, well. Did you kind of just shrug your shoulders and go, okay, all right, that yeah, sounds okay. <laughs> I mean, I knew, you know, I really, I enjoyed, you know, well, I enjoyed reading. I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed kind of 
problem solving. You know, I enjoyed being things that were logical. And so to me, you know, as a lawyer, a lot of it is problem solving, obviously. And then as a litigator, right, you're using a lot of logic to, you know, build an argument and you have to use precedent and uh, all of that, you know, was really interesting. So that's, that was my path. And I love it. I'm glad lawyer was an option. <laughs> now, isn't that funny? Just, I mean, just hear, listening to that story, the impact of our upbringings, our parents, their aspirations. Um, likewise, I had immigrant parents, went to, uh, arrived in Australia from Greece in the 60s. The, the one thing that their children were not going to do was what they did, work in a factory. My parents were working class. And so although they weren't as specific as your father was, it was clear we were going to get educated and we were not going to be, uh, as I said, you know, working in a factory. It shapes you. It's, it can't but um, uh, help shape you and probably well beyond too, just the career choice. Yeah, there's a lot of what my father instilled in me that I take to this day. I also say that it's, you know, it's probably a good thing that I am not artistic or musical in any way because I never had any I never had any big dreams to be a dancer because then you would have been a disappointment is that what you're telling me <laughs> I don't think I would have been allowed to do it yeah but, so Isn't that this funny? fits me really well <laughs> all right what about the early part of your career how did you kick off your legal career take me through certainly what happened before you, you spent quite a bit of time BASF of course I think you were there 14 years before your current role just this year at, at Stryker, heading up the litigation and employment department. But, but what, what about the early part of your career? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in law school, you know, I did the typical uh, summer associate jobs and, and spent time at a, at a few different law firms that really did, um, made me realize that litigation is yeah. the path that I wanted to do. It was just really much more interesting to me than some of the other practice areas. And to this day, I really love being in litigation. You just wanted to win, didn't you? So I just, you just come, you were competitive, you want to win, I, yeah. I'm with you. I, well, again, my, back to my dad, he said yeah. I always love to argue, and so yeah. that yeah. probably played a role. Um, yeah. So after law school, I clerked on the New Jersey Supreme Court, and that was also an amazing experience for me. I clerked for the first African-American justice on the New Jersey wow. Supreme Court. He had an amazing story, and I really learned a lot from him. Um, not only about the law and kind of how to, you know, carry yourself, but also just, you know, the struggles that some people go yeah. through to, in their career to get to where they are. And it really kind of helped frame how I look at DNI issues now and why some of that is so important to me. Well, let's, let's just double click on that because that uh, clearly formative for you early in your career. T tell me how, how, what, what did you actually see? And how did that actually impact on you? Well, you know, his story was amazing. And he was a child of sharecroppers in, you know, down in yep. the South. Um, and then, you know, went through his career and ended up on the New Jersey Supreme Court. And similar to my background, just in the sense that, you know, you grow, a lot of people will grow up without having access to others who are, I, I never knew a lawyer, anyone in the legal profession uh, when I was going through law school, my parents didn't have those kinds of friends. My parents' friends were all immigrants who, you know, again, you know, some of them were professionals, but some of them worked in factories or they were cab drivers. And so to to focus on giving folks, law students and others opportunities to have that access 
and to understand that not everyone is going to come from the same place, but that doesn't mean your end goal should not be something that you can achieve. Um, that until- is, it, it, it's, it's kind of profound when you really appreciate how much luck has to do with your success. And the fact that others aren't as lucky simply because they didn't have those opportunities. I, it, it took me a while to really understand that it wasn't me and my my efforts. It was that, that was only on top of the opportunity. Where I was born, what I was you know, born, right time, right place, right colour, right gender. I talk about that a lot, but it took me a long time to really understand how impactful that was. So when you talk about creating opportunities, that because if you create those opportunities, then somebody's got somebody who's got the drive, the the ambition, right. um, can make the most of it. So it is no, that's. You know, yeah. It's absolutely true. It's 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 a combination of luck. Obviously, merit and hard work has a lot to do with it. But some of the chances that you get to, you know, meet people or attend certain schools or whatever it may be, and or have the frankly the ability, you know, the financial ability to ascend, attend certain schools. You know, a lot of that just comes from, like you said, your upbringing, your connections, who who you know, who your parents know, and a lot of people don't have that. And I saw that in the judge that I clerked for. Um, and I saw that even a little bit in my own life. And my parents were, we didn't struggle, but we didn't have the connections that I saw a lot of, you know, folks in law school and throughout my legal career had some of those connections. So that always resonated with me. And I've taken that, you know, for the last 25 years of my career. And, and uh, I know it was a big part of your career uh, during BASF. Talk to me about some of the initiatives there, because I think you really led um, certainly in legal, the um, DE&I initiative. And, yeah, and I absolutely. Know you were there. Talk, talk, uh, talk to me about that. So that was, you know, we when we started kind of looking at DE&I more intentionally at BASF, it was a directive really that came in from the general counsel at the time who really wanted to make this a focus and a strategic priority for the department. So it has to start there. Yeah. The, the tone at the top has to be there. Um, and it was. And so it allowed me and others to create a program with our outside counsel, both externally and then internally as well with others in the legal department that really, again, focused on creating opportunities. We launched this program with our outside counsel where we had a scorecard that allowed our outside counsel to provide us with data and metrics that we used to score our outside law firms on different uh, metrics related to gender diversity, ethnic race and ethnic diversity, and then track that data over several years to see if there is improvement. What we really believed at BSF, and I believe to my core, is that we cannot expect meaningful change in the industry to happen if clients and in-house counsel like me and other general counsel and other folks out there don't get actively involved. We cannot just go to our law firms and say, you need to do better, go do better, and then come back to us in a year and show us how how you've done better. That to me, I don't think is, I don't think we can expect a lot of meaningful change. Not because the law firms don't want to do it. Every single law firm that I had the pleasure of working with at BASF um, and that I've seen even at Stryker so far, 
the law firms want to do better in DEI. They want to they want to be more diverse. They want to be more equitable. They want to be more inclusive. But they but they need support from clients. Yeah. I mean, this ecosystem, our legal e- ecosystem, is clients and law firms primarily, right? And so we have to work together. We have to have that partnership. And as in house lawyers, we have to really be willing to give opportunities to say, you know, junior associates who are associates of color or who are women who, you know, haven't had an opportunity and be willing to say, you know what, we are okay with not having the senior person who typically is not someone who's diverse, because that's still true in, in a lot of law firms. We're okay with not having that senior person you know, do an argument yep. at, at, you know, a summary judgment argument. We're, we're going to put our confidence in yep. some of the more junior talent so that they have that opportunity to develop. We have to do that as in-house lawyers as well. Um, we have to push our law firms to do that and then be comfortable with that. Now, Sneha, uh, I was in London uh, last month uh, speaking at a conference and I was in a panel session and I made the statement, this was the topic of discussion, and I made the statement that, I thought the responsibility was not 50%, 60%, 70%, but 100% on the in-house counsel to drive this change and that any expectation that um, anything less than that would not actually achieve the change. And certainly relying on law firms wouldn't change achieve the change. Not because there's anything in, that the law firms are inherently doing wrong, you're absolutely right in their desire, but my experience has told me and market forces for me tell me that unless the buyer demands it and takes almost, if not full responsibility for demanding it, it's very hard to, to drive change. Am I overstating it? Well, well, how would you respond? I fully agree that the clients, the in-house counsel as the buyer of legal services have to be more vocal we have to push, we have to be very intentional. But I wouldn't take, I wouldn't let the law firms off the hook, right? Yeah. Um, because yeah. for, you know, because diversity is important, not just for diversity's sake, but for, you know, business. Results, performance, yep. Results, performance, um, yeah. to be better lawyers. And for law firms, it's also their internal culture. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I think that early on in my career, I, you know, I, I don't want to say I struggled, but it was a little bit lonely yeah. and challenging is because I didn't see a ton of people who look yeah. like me yeah. at, you know, high levels in the law firm. And that still has to be on the law firm to yeah. want to create that inclusive environment, regardless of whether or not all of their clients are pushing. Yeah. So I would make it more 60-40, maybe. I do think ultimately... The stronger the demand, then the yeah. stronger the action. But by by necessity. Um, but um, it's a long road. If, if we're kind of honest with ourselves, and we we started on the path some time ago, we we haven't made the industry hasn't made the progress that if you took yourself back ten years ago and you were projecting out, you would have hoped. You certainly would have hoped for more progress. So it is a long road. I don't think anyone underestimates um, the challenges, but certainly the importance of driving and, and the, to my mind, in-house teams driving. And from what I've seen in, in my experience is that everyone wants to do better. 
right? So the intention is there. And so, you know, we have to keep working. We have to keep working. Anything during your time, if we think about um, BASF, if you look back, what's pivotal for you? What, what, what really has kind of stayed with you? You know, it's interesting because at BASF, it was my first in-house job uh, coming from a law firm. And I spent, you know, eight years or so at a great law firm in New York City, learned how to be a lawyer, you know, really fantastic. But it's so different <laughs> going in-house. And I really struggled initially with, and sometimes I still do, frankly, um, with not having the depth of knowledge that you had as a law firm associate, right? Where you, when you worked on a case and you knew everything about that case, you knew every document, you knew what every witness said in depositions, you could, you know, pinpoint it. And then you, you go in-house and you just, the, the volume of what you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis is so immense that you don't have time to get to that granularity of what is going to be able to sit in your head and and have total recall the way you used to. And I struggled for a long time to not only get to to get comfortable with that, to, you know, real to understand that that wasn't my job anymore. And and it wasn't realistic. And, you know, I took that at BSF and I became more comfortable with just my own instincts, my own reactions to things, my gut reactions, you know, based on my experience and based on my knowledge. Um, But that's a lot of what in-house counsel are bringing to the table, obviously that substantive expertise, but what, how can you work with your business partners to provide them with that kind of insight and instinct and gut check or knowledge that will help them solve the problems, right? That we're trying to help them solve. And it doesn't mean you have to know the answer to every single question at the moment that you're asked, but it takes a long time for um, a lot of lawyers, including folks like me who are, you know, type A personalities to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to have to get back to you or the answer to that, you know, we, no one knows. And so we just have to look at the risk and, you know, figure out how we move forward. And so that I think, you know, is something I developed at BSF and now I'm learning at Stryker. It's, it's been fantastic. It's only been a little over six months. It's a new industry for me. It's a new company, new people, new ways of doing things. I'm slowly feeling my way now in this new environment uh, with that same mindset, right? Of you don't know everything. And part of what you learn also is I myself am not supposed to know everything. And that's why you have fantastic teams. Uh, and I was lucky to have that at BASF, and I'm incredibly lucky to have that at Stryker. Fantastic teams of folks who really know what they're doing and are the experts. And we all work together as a group to support, you know, ultimately our clients. And a shout out to Rob Fletcher there, the GC, Chief Legal He's Officer at Stryker. Yeah, fantastic. That's right. A very, in fact, I think he was my guest number three or four of one really early guest. So kudos to him for giving me a shot nice and early. <laughs> Um, on the podcast. Um, so yeah, a shout out to Rob there. Talk to me about leadership, Sneha. Talk to me, what what have you learned and what principles, what leadership principles do you apply now um, in your current role? We're all people. And so you really um, have to, you know, treat people as individuals who are driven by different things, who are motivated by different things, who 
will react differently to different things and take that time individually to, you know, understand what drives people. And so as a leader, you know, again, in my prior roles and now at Stryker, to me, the most important thing is understanding my team and really trying to be able to be there as a resource, be, you know, uh, an ear for, you know, whatever uh, that they want to ask, be a resource for when folks need help, uh, and then just continue to have that empathy for what people might be going through, especially these last, I mean, if these last two and a half years (laughs) haven't taught us anything, right? It's that we have to have you know, empathy for the other people in our lives, right? Whether it's our professional lives or frankly, our personal lives, because we're all in this together. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. Sneha, you're just so right. And it takes some time, I think, to actually, especially when you're younger in your career, it's very much about me, you, you know, yourselves, your advancement and so forth. It's, It's kind of a very narrow focus, but ultimately... We are all people. We are all driven by different things. Um, uh, we all react differently, but we all learning how to communicate, how to understand, how to walk in the shoes of others to the extent possible. The more you get to really try and put yourself in their shoes and try to understand what's motivating them, the more you're able to influence and whether it's team members, support, elevate, make successful. Absolutely. Skills that I keep saying, nobody teaches you that. Um, Oh, well, I'm not sure if anyone teaches you that. Certainly at law school, I wasn't taught that. And depending upon how lucky you are in the early part of your career and seeing really good examples of that and then being able to imitate that, we often imitate how how we've been mentored it is is really is critical. It is, it is, and I've I've been fortunate over my entire career, starting with um, my law firm at Patterson Belknap and BASF, yeah. and even even in six short months at Stryker, yeah. um, to have great mentors who you know I've been able to learn a lot from, and who have been supporters and allies, right? Who have who have advocated for my development and my success, uh, and so I want to take that. I, yeah. I want to take what others have done for me and and do that for, you know, folks on my team and, you know, other folks who uh, I'm working with now. And I think the other key thing to, to know, and this was, you know, th- these were things that we talked about at BASF that resonate, you know, I think in any environment, a couple of things. One is my old general counsel at BASF, Matt Lepore, used to say, um, do what makes sense. And I think that also is something that, you know, a lot of times I think about when you're faced with a choice or a challenge or a way to kind of move forward in something or a decision to make that's difficult. At the end of the day, if we all just kind of do what makes sense, you know, we will hopefully all be on the same page. Um, And then assume good intentions of people. I think that is hard to do, um, you know, professionally and frankly, personally, because folks will do things and you're always, you know, creating yep. a story about, well, why did they do that? Oh, yeah. do we're, we're fantastic at creating stories in our own minds, aren't yes, we? We absolutely. live by those stories. Most of them are wrong, but right. that's exactly what we do. Right. And But if you really take a step back and say, 
you know, this this person had a good intention and maybe the message was lost in the communication or it's an email, right? And you don't get the context or now it's a text message and you, you know, (laughs) it's very hard to interpret. But if you just take a step back and say, let's assume the good intentions of the people that we're working with and just, you know, try to figure out how we can move forward. I think, you know, so not a ton of real, you know, tried and true principles. I think it's just Uh, how I want to, how I want to go about my life. Yeah. Um, you know, in my personal life, I try to, I try to bring that to my professional life. It's funny. So do what makes sense. What I've heard um, described before here, and I think this was, um, from uh, Kristen at Lyft, um, do the right thing. Yep. Just Absolutely. do the right thing. And if, if you, and I think that's exactly the same sentiment. Just do the right thing. And w- when people actually really think about judging by reference to, to that as the, as the guiding North Star, that can cut through a lot of discussion, a lot of debate very quickly. <laughs> really simple, but really, really powerful. Combine that with, you know, assuming good intentions. I know that pro bono work is a big part of your professional life. Talk to me about that. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. Uh, you know, it, it also stems from what my father instilled in me. I know yep. I've talked about my father a lot, um, but he was really uh, giving back to the community was really, really important to him. And so I have taken that and and kind of done that throughout my career and my life, not only professionally, but personally. And so pro bono work in the context of um, my professional life is incredibly important. I've been doing it since uh, my law firm. In fact, one of the reasons why I loved Patterson Belknap and it, and it was you know really uh, known for being really committed to pro bono work, not only time helping those who needed help, but learn how to be a lawyer in the process. I started a nonprofit organization with very good friends of mine um, that provides, it's called Ayati, and it provides uh, resources and education uh, related to menstrual hygiene for young girls in rural parts of India, um, because it was a big problem of girls dropping out of school, frankly, at like a rate of one in four, because they didn't have access to this education and the resources and again, we we meant we talked earlier about kind of luck and chance. You know, we were lucky. We're all the yeah. children of immigrants, parents who came from India. We were lucky that they that they moved here and we were given these opportunities. And that lack of you know resources to manage something as simple as a period does not affect us or our daughters here in this country. And we just thought it was something that should not affect girls' ability to you know achieve and to succeed. And so I spend lots of my time on nights and weekends, you know, in addition to doing all the other things, doing pro bono work and charitable work. I think it's incredibly important. I think it makes you a more well-rounded person. It feeds my soul, frankly, um, which I think is incredibly important to do. And so I, you know, it's, it really, it, it drives me. It's, it's one of the things I'm incredibly passionate about. Oh, kudos to you, Sneha. And, you know, I was going to draw the, draw the same link that you've just there bet- between, you know, the luck and opportunity and so forth. And it is, it is so much about that, right, being born in the right time or the right Absolutely. place. I mean, and how, how should that, that cannot be the determinant whether it's access to justice, whether it's access to opportunities, that cannot be right. Whether it's access to 
menstrual health care. Kudos to you. And I think that in being able to, it's a ripple effect across, across tens, hundreds, thousands, millions of people if we can do that because everyone that then receives the benefit and sees the impact for themselves on that, they'll pay that forward and that's what actually elevates an entire community, an entire society, the entire world. So the more snehas we can have out there, um, the better off the world is going to be. Um, Sneha, I know you're a big advocate for alternative fee arrangements in relation to the way you manage your outside counsel, particularly, of course, you know, in litigation, which is your um, specialty. Talk about what you've seen in the industry around a kind of a shift, what I think is that, what I'm hoping is a shift away from just pure hourly billing to, to alternative fee arrangements and how that's impacted on the way that you have engaged, both yeah. at BASF and now at um, Stryker. That's um, where you and I uh, have strong agreement. Oh, fantastic. I love strong agreement there. (laughs) The the billable hour, you know, is is just not an efficient way to, you know, value what we get from our outside counsel. Um, And so, again, this was something at BASF that uh, Matt Lepore, who had come from Pfizer to BASF uh, many years ago, and I worked closely with, uh, brought to BASF. And we got to the point that, you know, I want, I think north of 90% of the legal work uh, that was being done through outside counsel at BASF was done on alternative fee arrangements. Now, and, you know, so, so really, just pausing there for the general counsel out there who, who and now have to do a rewind because they're not sure if they actually heard that correct. Yes, that was 90%. Yeah, I think, I mean, and in, in every practice area, I mean, we did yeah. it in, you know, kind of, you know, IP, uh, preparation and prosecution, yep. but we did it in litigation. We did it in single plaintiff cases. We did it in mass tort litigation. We did it in antitrust litigation, patent litigation. We did it in M&A deals, regulatory work, employment litigation. I mean, across the board, yep. you can make it work, but you, what you have to have are two willing participants who are looking at it, not again, not through the billable hour lens. Yep. And, and that's for both parties, right? I mean, it's for the law firm's who who have to let go of this, but we're going to lose money on an yeah. AFA because we'd make more money on an hourly basis. Again, that's not the way you should look at it. And for the clients, frankly, who might, you know, we have, we had, I, I know several times at BASF maybe, you know, paid too much, quote, and people can't yeah. see me. Yeah. Just podcast, but I have air quotes. But that's right. There are air quotes coming yeah. right now. Paid too much, exactly. Paid too much on an yeah. alternative fee because the hours would have been less. But that's not what we're paying for. We're not yeah. paying for hours. We're paying for results. We're Outcomes. paying for value. We're paying yes. for the efficiency. And so both clients and law firms just have to stop comparing what we're doing to what would it what would it have been on a billable hour. I don't know how quickly you know the whole industry will get there. What I learned is that there are some law firms that do it really, really well, and some law firms that don't, right? There are some law firms that will acquiesce to a client who wants to do an AFA, but they kind of do it kicking and screaming, and they don't really know how to build it because it does take a lot of work on the front end. And so I will say that it is yep. not the easier path. Yep. Um, sometimes, frankly, you know, when you know we had some really complicated AFAs, um, 
it would have been easier just for me to review a bill and, yeah. you know, write off some time and, and call it a day. But again, that's not what we're driving. I mean, we're trying to align interests with between the client and the law firm. We're trying to drive efficiencies in how the law firms are doing their work. Um, and what I love is I remember a story with one law firm where we put them on an AFA and it was on a big matter. So this was a large AFA. And the law firm, rather than, you know, kind of being worried about not being able to make, you know, again, quote, make money off of the AFA. I remember the, the, the main partner said, I love this because now I can decide how to staff things yeah. and who should attend what without the client every month saying, why did three what? people attend the deposition or why were there four people on that call? The law firm, you know, oftentimes should be the ones figuring that out because they're closest to the day-to-day -day work. Certainly not me anymore. Yep. Yep. Um, and if we use the right partners and the right law firms who know how to manage these AFAs, they will figure it out and they will make money, right? They'll they'll hit their margins and, and they'll make a profit. And we will be happy because we have agreed to a fee and that's what we'll pay, right? There's, you know, hopefully there's no overrun on the budget. Hopefully yeah. there's no surprises. And that's what we want. What we want to be able to tell our internal business clients and stakeholders who live and die by their budgets, right? And, you know, that this is what the fee is and this is what you can expect. Well, one other example I was thinking about when you were just talking about um, the, the partner in the law firm kind of being relieved and saying, I can now manage um, uh, the case the way I want to and the, and the team. Think about the junior associates that would otherwise have missed meetings and missed being in conference and missed, missed witness deposition because of a concern. Look, um, the, uh, the client's going to be worried about too many people, too many yeah. hours, and we're going to have to move that person to do some other kind of less meaningful but perhaps billable work. That's a perverse result. Yeah, um, I agree. And, and there are some, and look, I and it's a perverse result, Jim, that also runs counter to some of these DE&I initiatives yes. that I was just talking of about. Of course, because you want to get all of that learning. You want to be able to share that and not worried about, well, this person's not going to be um, either appreciated by the client because the client is looking to have less people or, um, as, as I said, um, given another task, which is, is so-called billable, but you know, certainly less meaningful and um, uh, and will make less of an impact on the yeah. development of the career. But Look, like I said, yeah. it is it does take a lot of work does. on the front end. You have to scope out the matter and the expectations. And because there is still, you know, time is not an inconsequential, you know, um, variable in all of this. I mean, there, you know, there is effort, there is time that is being spent. And so we have to know, is this matter expected to take a month? Is it expected to go for five years? Because obviously, you know, what you pay is going to look different. But the exact every six minutes, I mean, that's just, we have to get rid of that. Correct. And you're absolutely right. But anything that is worthwhile takes effort and requires, um, and requires to the development of a new, in this case, a really kind of a new muscle for the industry. How do we scope? How do we define what happens when there are changes and what will that cost? That is a new muscle that the industry is. is trying to um, and, and is absolutely working on and improving on developing, but it's absolutely crucial. 
to avoid the kind of perverse results um, that we're talking about, to avoid being measured by how much time you can spend, to avoid associates looking to do what I've called, or what I've repeated the phrase shit work because it's billable. Um, We've got to drive that out. We've got to be... We've got to be teaching the industry how to value outcomes and how to get to outcomes. Right. And results. And results. At the end of the day, we want results. And I I was always happy and willing to, you know, again, air quotes, pay more for a good result versus the time it took to get that good result. Always. 10 times out of 10. But but who isn't? It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Say, I'm not sure that there are actually too many people in the industry that say, no, 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 it's the best model. What they, well, no, not quite. They don't say, look, we think it drives the right behaviours. Nobody actually says that. But what they usually say is, but we can't, there is no better model. That's what they, at the AFA is a harder one or doesn't quite work or they don't know how to make it work. It's usually... That's the problem. It's not everyone's rah rahing the billable hour. It's we can't find a better right. way. We haven't learned how to build, how to develop that muscle. Well, and I think for as long and even law firms that are willing to work with clients in a you know in alternative fee arrangements and do a good job of it, vis a vis the client, you know, law firms are still managing productivity or, or looking at productivity of their associates and other folks by the hour. They are. And so that, you know, again, I, I don't know how that will ever change, but, you know, I look at it as, as an in-house lawyer, I've been doing, I've been in-house now for, you know, over 15 years where we have to measure the results and contributions and productivity and, you know, performance of the folks on our teams. I don't know a single metric about how many hours anybody yeah. works. But, but we look at how people are doing their jobs, the results they're getting, you know, all of, all of these other things to measure performance. It can't be that law firms can't do no, that as well. I mean, no, your in-house clients are doing that every single day. So, But, but there is, there is a, almost an institutional problem there is, in fact, the financials, in terms of the financial infrastructure of law firms, is very much based on so that the resistance is not necessarily from the sometimes it's funny i had a story about a, a managing partner that or senior partner that really ran for his re-election i can say his because it was he his re-election on the basis of moving away from the billable hour to more to alternative fee arrangements and the strongest resistance was within essentially the finance department of the law firm because it couldn't change it was, it was so institutionalized, it was a global firm, it was too hard to change. Yeah. So, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. It doesn't. Absolutely <laughs> right. So, if there's one word of advice that you would give, well, actually, two one to the in house teams, the general counsels that are thinking or struggling with this, and one to law firms, what would that advice be, Sneha? So, I think for in house counsel, um, I think there is sometimes is a fear of starting with these because you don't maybe have that, you know, knowledge in-house or the operations folks who, you know, maybe have done this before, but you just kind of just get started. I mean, that's how we did it at BASF. I mean, we didn't yep. have, you know, some large operations team. 
we just the general counsel, Matt came in and said, this is what we're doing. And I remember yep. being like, I don't know how to do that. Yep. But, you know, we started and we learned. And then, you know, several years later, we got better at it. So you're not going to be an expert and you may not get them all right. Yep. You know, again, there may be, you know, arrangements that don't work for either side, but you have to practice. You have to kind of gain that muscle, like you said, yep. in order to be able to do it right. And for law firms, kind of same thing, right? Just if you have a client who's willing to do this and wants to do this, kind of open, you know, step outside of that comfort zone of, yep. you know, saying that we just need to go by the billable hour and try, try to do it. But the biggest piece of advice that I have for both is that it it's driven by partnership and trust. I mean, it is very hard, I think, to have these kinds of arrangements with one-off law firms that you've never used before and you'll never use again. Because I, I think at the core of every good alternative fee arrangement, value-based billing, whatever you want to call it, is trust. The law firm has to trust that the client will recognize when there's a scope change, a real scope change, right? A scope change is not, I spent 10 more hours at a deposition than I thought I would. The same deposition, a scope changes. Yeah. You know, we thought there would be two experts, and now there's five so, experts. I mean, that's a scope change. And so the law firms have to trust that the client is going to recognize that and come back to the table to negotiate something fair. Because at the end of the day, we want our law firms to, you know, do well and earn, you know, earn and earn a profit on the work that they're doing. Just like. I want my company <laughs> to do well and earn a profit on, you know, the the products that they're selling. It, it's not any different, but that trust has to be there. Um, and then the clients have to have the trust that the law firms are, again, going to, you know, look at the spirit of the alternative fee arrangement, you know, take that um, desire to be more efficient and to really look at staffing and how you're doing things to really focus on the value added work that will make a difference in the case and, and to not, you know, say, try to not leave every stone unturned because that's what then drives the hours. And then that drives the request for a change, you know, uh, or more fees. And that is what creates problems. Sneha, you did, you've given me an idea, I have to say, when you talked about, too, there are some law firms that are excellent at AFAs and some that aren't. I think we might release um, a pursuit ranking of, you know, and you know how law firms love rankings, pursuit <laughs> ranking of the best, the, the best AFA law firms out there. And I, and I would hope that the law firms who do this well, you know, would want and be willing. I mean, it's a, you know, it's obviously a very competitive yeah. industry, but be willing to share kind of how yeah. they do it. Because, you know, again, at the end of the day, what benefits the one client of one law firm is going to benefit, benefit the whole industry. Yeah. And I just think it's it's the way we should be going, I hope. Sneha, we could talk for hours. Let me uh, close off with a couple of my usual favorite questions advice they have that you'd give to your 25 year old self i don't remember being 25 <laughs> <laughs> it's all a blur is um, no you know i think when i you know again was kind of a junior associate i, I was just really hard on myself i mean i'm yep. my own worst critic i always yep. have been i think my you know father uh 
who was an immigrant who was very kind of hard on us and expected so much from us, he kind of drilled that into me, right? You had to be the best. You had to be, you know, straight A's at the top of your class, be the best in everything. That, 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 that's very un-Indian-like. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, was, it was very true. Um, and, yeah. I, and, I, and I credit him for a lot of that because yeah. I think it did give me that drive and, you know, that real kind of self-motivation. But there's a downside to that. Yeah. And the downside to that is just I was, you know, if, if I made one slight mistake, yep. I was just always way too hard on myself. Yep. And, and sometimes I still am to this day. I would tell my 25-year-old self to kind of give herself a little bit of grace, yep. right? Perfection is not the goal and, and yep. it's not even a, an attainable goal. Yep. Um, and you just, you do your best. <laughs> you you're Be prepared, do your homework, you know, be diligent, do your best. And then if you stumble along the way or you have failures or you make mistakes, give yourself some grace. Give yourself that, a bit of slack. Yeah. Th that yeah. is really good advice. I don't know whether you would have taken it at 25 because <laughs> of just not. the way you were made. It is advice that I now try and give out to those who are earlier in their career. And it's advice that's good in your personal life as well, right? I mean, as you know, a, a mom to two kids and, you know, I, we're making mistakes every day yeah. with parenting and whatnot. And, you know, I was when, especially when my son, who's now 16, was a baby. I mean, I was always so hard on myself for not doing yeah. everything exactly the way the books told you to do it or what people told you to do. And it comes with, it comes with experience. It comes with maturity just to kind of uh, give uh, yourself some, like, give yourself some grace. It does. And youth now, is, as, as we know, it's wasted on the young, of course, because they don't, they don't have that. But um, Sneha, what's the hardest thing you've ever done, personal or professional, that you're prepared to share with us? This will be a real personal story, but I think the hardest thing I've gone through, I don't know that it's yep. something I've done. Um, my daughter, uh, who's 12 now, um, was born and three months later, my father died unexpectedly. Oh, so, man. you know, the same father yeah. who I've mentioned yeah. a few times who really was, you know, kind of formative in the person I am personally and professionally. Um, and going through that emotion of literally the highest of highs yeah. when you have a baby and everything's yeah. healthy and everything's wonderful. And three months later, the lowest of lows and, and kind of getting through that personally um, with my family, with my mom, who is also an incredibly strong figure in my life. And, you know, just from a personal perspective, that's the hardest thing I've gone through. And then professionally, you know, it was, it was the support of the, the people who I worked with that yeah. also really helped me, not only my friends and family, but that, and that's why it's so important for me when you ha are, you know, working with teams and working with coworkers to see people as human, yeah. to see people as people, because they're bringing so much else to the table than what you see just from what, you know, in your day-to-day -day interactions at work. There is so much more that is behind that person. Um, and working with people at, this was at BASF, who understood that about me and knew that about me kind of helped me get through that. Um, I sometimes talk about, you know, we've all got shit to deal with. And sometimes, you know, we're in um, really difficult periods of our lives and just being conscious that everyone is dealing, your team members, the, 
anyone that you're working with, anyone that you're walking by the street, anyone that cuts you off, that the people have all got their own things that they're dealing with, their Absolutely. struggles and recognising that and being able to have that empathy, not just necessarily for those that you know intimately, your family and that, but beyond um, that, again, that's something that I reckon I learned a bit I wish I'd learned that a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, well, but, I think it's simple, you know, the, to give yourself grace is important yeah. and to give others grace. Oh, grace. And, and, yeah. 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 Is really um, last question. Anything that's keeping you up at night now? Um, my inability two, to sleep. Two, yeah. <laughs> inability, and two teenage children, of course, I get, <laughs> I get it. Look, that's only going to last another 10 years or so. So you... So. Yeah, you know, no, I, I can't say anything really is keeping me up at night. I mean, I, you know, I, I've started a new job at a, at a new company. And so just really wanting to feel like I'm able to, you know, continue to learn and, and you know, add a lot of value to my team and, and to the department. Um, again, not keeping me up at night, but it's really high on my priority list. And as I said, I have a 16-year-old son. And so he's pretty close to, um, you know, about a year and a half away from going away to college. And so that it hit me recently that that it just goes too fast. Um, and so just wanting to, you know, spend as much time with him with my family as I can. Yeah, everyone tells you that time goes really fast. But when they tell you, and when the kids are really young, it kind of falls on deaf, deaf ears. You don't, you hear it, but you don't really hear it. And then it happens. And then you look around, you go, yeah. oh, wow. Well, and they say, you know, especially when kids are really little, the days are long, right? But the years, the years are short. Sure. And it, it's really true when you yeah. get yeah. to the point where <laughs> I am right now. Yeah. Sneha, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and having this conversation. I've had an absolute blast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jim. It was my pleasure as well. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.